Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, some people like Halloween and some people absolutely adore it. And the owner of Punk Rock Pastries in Vancouver shows why she's definitely part of that latter group. She's been proving it for weeks now on the Food Network's Halloween Baking Championships. And she joins me to talk about the love of the 31st of October and the best in spooky treats. Where shouldn't you go? On a first date, there's a list out there these days that's very popular of 28 don'ts. Uh, as I said, it's getting a lot of attention. The no-go list includes everything from coffee dates to the movies, even buffets. So where should you go? We get some sound advice. The way that the Canadian public views immigration levels is shifting. The housing shortage, the increase in the cost of living, means public support has fallen. A new poll by Enveronics uh, with the Century Initiative finds that 44% of Canadians now think that immigration levels are too high. That's up from 27% last year. We dig into the numbers to find out what's behind them and what story they tell. But first, Ottawa-raised actor Matthew Perry passed away over the weekend at the age of 54. He was, of course, best known for his decade as Chandler Bing on the wildly popular sitcom Friends, a role that brought him fame and fortune. But as he revealed in a memoir released last year, he'd also struggled for years with addiction, including well on Friends. We look back at his legacy and why his character and the actor himself connected with so many. First up tonight, like so many of you, I don't know, I mean, I was at an age where I got to watch sort of Friends in its glory. I was in my early days of work. We weren't that much younger than Matthew Perry and all his buddies on the show were. The characters on the show were roughly my age. So, you know, although their life seemed very different from mine and my early jobs in my 20s, there was something really charming about the show. And, of course, about Matthew Perry. He was from Ottawa, or he'd been raised in Ottawa, at least. So there was kind of a Canadian connection to it all. He was he was nominated, of course. His character, Chandler Bing, was one of the most quotable characters on TV for about a decade. Uh, he passed away this week, and I'm sure you've seen this at the age of 54. He was found dead in his L.A. home in his hot tub, apparently. They still haven't determined the cause of death exactly. Apparently, it's been put off for now. But still, a big shock, right? A big shock, not only to Hollywood, but of course, back here at home, where he was, you know, one of, like like everyone who makes it big in America, if you had some time in Canada, you know, you're kind of, uh, well, you know, we, we pay special attention to you. Uh, he was always, of course, the funny one. He was just 24 when he got the role. He made over 200 episodes of Friends. Uh, here's an exchange with David Schwimmer's character, Ross. A reminder. Hey, check out those two blondes over there. Hey, come with me. Are you trying to get everybody divorced? (laughs) You don't have to do anything. It'll just be easier if it's the two of us, like college. Remember, first you uh, break the ice with some kind of a joke so they know you're the funny one, then I swoop in with some interesting conversation so they'll see that I'm the brilliant, brooding, sexy one. I thought I got to make the jokes. Yeah, there was a lot of that over the decade. Of course, today, uh, the rest of the Friends cast, Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc, uh, David Schwimmer, who you heard there, uh, released a statement saying, we are all utterly devastated by the loss of Matthew. We were more than castmates. We are a family. Of course, his connection to Canada was quite, was quite interesting. His mom, Suzanne, was once Pierre Trudeau's press secretary. His father, an American actor, John Bennett Perry, 
who was in Falcon Crest and Little House on the Prairie. His stepfather, Keith Morrison, the well-known Canadian reporter and anchor at Dateline. Um, last year, he wrote a book, a memoir that was pretty, pretty I mean, it was pretty detailed, and it was very frank. It was very, very frank. Here's Matthew Perry talking about it. If I did die, it would shock people, but it wouldn't surprise anybody. And that's what I'm doing with writing this book. That's why I wanted to do it. I want to just talk about the highs and the lows because people are suffering out there. And maybe if they hear a story from somebody they've seen on TV that's worse than theirs or just the same as theirs, they'll be filled with hope which is the key thing. Right, Perry talking there to People magazine with the release of his biography. And you really felt that was an important part of his career to raise awareness about addiction and the struggles that he'd had. And needless to say, you know that he, I didn't know this until I read this today. I was reminded of this day. He nearly didn't get that part. I mean, he got it, but he nearly couldn't take it. That's one of many tidbits that are included in Saul Austerlitz's book, Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era. And Saul joins me now from New York. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, a big shot. I mean, it's given given his background and all that he, how frank he was about his addiction issues and so on. I suppose it didn't come as an entire shock, but wow, it, it was it was very strange to, to read that news this weekend. Yeah, I think it still hit people very hard. You know, I think that people form real connections with the characters and performers they love on television and. It's hard to think of too many shows that are more beloved than Friends or that people have spent more time with than Friends. And so I think the loss of Matthew Perry feels less like a news story to people and more like a, a personal kind of loss. Yeah, and that says a lot about the show and his character, too, in that show, because I, I don't know whether people felt the same connection to all six characters, but certainly Chandler Bing was someone that people felt a real connection to. Yeah, I think he felt very familiar in some ways. He was, you know, just as kind of scrappy and and sad sack at times and, and you know, as, as people might have imagined themselves. But also, you know, I think having that sense of humor and that ability to kind of meet the world with, with a snappy remark at all times sort of embodied what a certain kind of person hoped they presented themselves as for the world. And I think Chandler Bing was kind of the, the epitome of that. I think early on, no one quite understood that some of that combination of kind of arrogance and insecurity that he played so well that and that humble that there was something about his there was a charming side of him but it was it felt at once you read his biography it felt very much like that was him in some ways i mean he was playing this character and yet it said a lot about some of the demons that he had and a lot of the charm that he had as well he was kind of that that duality even even that chandler bing portrayed on on tv I think that's correct. And I think that also spoke to why, you know, once the, the creators of Friends saw Matthew Perry perform the role, it was very difficult for them to imagine anyone else in it. Even after, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, there was a long moment where it seemed like Matthew Perry wouldn't be available to play. It was interesting. And I, I also that he was apparently coaching other actors because he loved the part so much, but he was committed to something else. Is that what happened? Yeah, so he had come in early for the role and had read for it, and he had really loved what he did with it and then believed him to be unavailable. And so, you know, uh, the creators of the show were really scrambling trying to find somebody. And the closest they came to it was uh, an actor named Craig Bierko, who would go on to other famous things. And they felt like Craig Bierko was, you know, he wasn't quite Matthew Perry, but he's, he was as close as they were going to get to it and were 
giving serious consideration to giving him the role and only belatedly came to understand that the reason why they liked Craig Bierko as much as they did was because Matthew Perry was coaching him. And so he was essentially doing his own version of Matthew Perry uh, in, Matthew. in the room for them. A bit about it. I mean, the fame, I think sometimes people who either weren't paying a lot of attention as sometimes people don't in certain eras of TV, you don't, you're not watching as closely as in other eras, but the fame that those actors knew all six of them uh, was pretty remarkable and the money and, and the pressure. I mean, ultimately the pressure as well of having to play that role and having to be recognized the way that Matthew Perry became recognized. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking uh, over the last few days about a story that, I got told from my book where James Burroughs, the sort of legendary sitcom director, took the six performers from the show on a trip to Las Vegas right before the show premiered. And it was in part, you know, a, an opportunity for them to all get away together and have a relaxing and fun weekend. And Burroughs also had a kind of lesson for them where he was telling them, this is the last time you're going to be able to go out without people recognizing you everywhere you go. And I think maybe before it happens, that feels like a really exciting development. Wow, you know, people will, will know who I am no matter where I am. And then once it happens, I think it can be a real shock. I think it's very difficult for anyone who hasn't had that experience to imagine what it's like to just kind of lose all sense of privacy, to have every step you take anywhere be documented and be kind of obsessively fixated on by people. Right. Especially in the case of someone like Matthew Perry, where you do have, I mean, you feel like you have something to hide, right? You feel like you're struggling with this addiction issue and that if it were to be found out, it's going to be very public. And then just the, the impact of that must be pretty, would be difficult on anybody, let alone someone in his position. I think that's 100% true. And I think, you know, it's also worthwhile to remember that this was an era where notions about struggling with addiction were not as evolved as they are now. And I think there was more of a tendency to blame people for their struggles and to punish them for their struggles. So the sense that I got was that Matthew Perry was even more inclined to kind of keep him, keep his struggles out of the public eye because of that punitive sensibility. And yet, as, as you, as you've talked about um, the cast and they talk about themselves as being a family today, again, really did rally around him, despite the fact, I, I don't imagine it was always easy and I don't think it was always you know, 100, it was never sort of brushed aside by the cast itself, but they worked very hard to try to make sure that he could stay on the show, despite the fact that they knew he was struggling. I think that's true. I think it's also worth noting that there probably were a few times where there were, there were other conversations. And I think that, interestingly, those conversations revolved around the question of what's best for Matthew Perry? Is it good for him to be a star on this show? And I think that kind of speaks to the the peculiar nature of stardom that it you know it asks so much of people and and can can you know thrust them into the same kinds of difficulties that they've experienced on their own and so yeah i think that spoke to the kind of um deep affection that everyone on friends had for matthew perry that even the most difficult conversations were always revolving around the question of how everyone could best take care of him well, do you guys have to go to the new house right away, or do you have some time? We got some time. Okay, should we get some coffee? Sure. Where? <laughs>
There you have it. That was the final episode of Friends. I remember covering that in 2004. It was that big a deal. They were showing it at movie theaters in Toronto, and I remember going to cover it and watching that very scene. Of course, Matthew Perry, Chandler Bing, gets the last word, right? Saul Austerlitz is with us. His book is called Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era. We're talking about the passing of Matthew Perry. Um, Saul, when you look, I guess when you look at the legacy of the show, and I, I'm amazed by how many people who weren't around then know it inside mm-hmm. out now. It's a show that just hasn't seemed to doesn't seem to have lost its appeal. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to me. And it's, in fact, what, what got me interested in writing my book in the first place was realizing that, you know, 15-year-olds were watching the show and debating it and thinking about it and engaging with it in a way that, you know, 20- and 25-year-old television shows just never have those kinds of audiences. They never have that kind of repeat engagement or engaging with audiences who weren't even alive when the show was first on. And that fascinated me because it's such a such a rarity in the story of television where, you know, TV is beloved one day and somewhat forgotten the next day. And so I think that speaks to Friends' ability to really connect with people in a way that's unusual. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, you, we, you know, I loved MASH, but it was the only thing on. Right? That was, it wasn't like today where you have this world of TV that you could watch and people tend to go watch. And not that MASH wasn't a great show, but they tend to be able to go watch something like like Friends. What do you think? I mean, Matthew Perry really was, I mean, he'll be forever remembered as that character. And I guess in some senses that that will be, that's quite the legacy to have, to be honest, to have played someone who's so beloved. Yeah, you know, I think it's for performers and for writers, I think it's it's a heavy burden in a way to know that you've already done the thing that's going to be the first line of your obituary. But at the right. same time, to have done something that is so cared for, that people connect with so deeply, that people are still wanting to talk about and think about is pretty powerful and is not something that, you know, many writers or actors experience. And so I think that's a special kind of of responsibility and a special kind of 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 remembrance his his wish was to remember not only i think you're absolutely right he he absolutely knew he would always be remembered for chandler bing but he also wanted to be remembered for having raised awareness about his struggles with addiction his very personal struggles with addiction and uh looking at his career and, and and the life that he led very few people have ever told that story so frankly. I wonder if that will also be part of his long-term uh, re- long-term legacy will be the frankness with which he spoke about his addiction issues in that biography. Yeah, I think that's correct. And I think that it's, it's, um, it's good that his memoir was able to come out and he was able to talk as frankly as he did about it and to to not have it be quite as secretive or as, as kind of tabloid conscious as it had been in the 1990s, you know, in a kind of different era for discussions related to addiction. And I guess that's that, I mean, that's that for friends, right? I mean, that's the sad, but I think that's the part that everyone was holding on to. It wasn't just the loss of Matthew Perry and Chandler Bing. It was also the end, the end of that era when we, we, I don't think there was going to be a full on Ala Frazier remake, but we now know that that's not going to happen the way it, it should have or could have. And that's also difficult, I think, for people who were very close to that show for a very long time. Well, I think people really love the Friends reunion, just having a chance to see their favorite performers again and see them engaging with each other. I think it's for the best, even before Matthew Perry's death, that they didn't try to bring Friends back. But I do think that there's there there's a real sense of loss here, undoubtedly. Well, Saul, I really appreciate your time on this tonight. Thank you.
Thanks so much for having me. This might might be that surprising, but there were some uh, there was a study released today, a, a survey, really a poll that was released today that said, um, first of all, you know that over the twelve months through June, the population of Canada expanded by around one point two million people. It's a lot of people, up above forty million. We talked about it a lot at the time. Three uh, percent growth, tw- uh, the largest twelve month increase in this country since the fifties, nineteen fifty seven to be exact, and. What it's led to, again, with the cost of living thing, affordability crisis going on, a lot of concern about housing and infrastructure and healthcare. Um, that a new poll that came out today by Environics, in partnership with the Century Initiative, they're an organization that advocates for Canada's population to hit 100 million by 20 by 2100 by the end of the century. It shows that 44% of Canadians think that immigration levels are now too high. That's up from 27% last year. So you can see that's a huge jump. Um, The largest change in sentiment between surveys that the company Environics has seen in four plus decades of polling on the topic. So we thought we'd find out why that is. Andrew Parkin is the executive director with the Environics Institute for Survey Research. He joins me now. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a pretty big shift. I mean, if you look, you've, I was looking at the trend lines, and this sort of goes counter to what the trend line had been for decades now. It, yes, it it is a big shift. Um, although, you know, one thing we can get to is not everything is shifting, right? But mm. this this main question that we ask around whether people agree or do not agree that there's too much immigration to Canada. Yeah, it had been, you know, fairly steady and declining bit by bit for about uh, 20 years inching ever more uh, positive uh, until this year, where it took a, you know, a big leap uh, backwards. There's still more Canadians who agree, uh, sorry, more Canadians who disagree that there's too much immigration. So the, 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 you know, the majority still on the side that we're okay. But the point is that there was a big shift. There's a 17 point shift um, uh, in a big jump up of the people who say, wait a minute, I think there's a little bit too much immigration to the country right now. What what's driving it? Because I don't feel that it's um, when you sort of look at it anecdotally, you don't feel like there's some sort of backlash against immigration. But there certainly is a lot of concern that there's not enough here to allow people, um, you know, to to accommodate people. Essentially, I I, I think that's it. I mean, both both points uh, that you said. I don't think this is what you would call a cultural backlash. Um, I think this is a heightened concern uh, around uh, infrastructure. I mean, and there, there's two things I would say. There's a general thing and a specific thing. The general part is that the mood of the country in this latter half of 2023 um, is not good. Uh, people are not feeling great about where things are headed. So we have a general question just about whether you're satisfied or dissatisfied with the way things are going in Canada today. And that question has also seen a big jump backwards. In other words, a big uh, jump up in the proportion of Canadians who are just unhappy with the way things are going. And then a lot of that is around uh, the economy. There's increasing pessimism about where the economy is headed. And, you know, we can guess a lot of that is around inflation and, and interest rates. So that's interest rates. That's the general context, right? The general mood is not good. And then I think you add into that the specific concerns around housing affordability that I think play into this. And that speaks to, I think, what you were what you were getting to, you know, around that, you know, have we put all the building blocks in place? And I, I think one kind of precision I'd bring to it is I don't 
you know, there's there's some amount of speculation when you see these numbers. You read in them a little bit. You try and kind of get a sense of what people are really meaning. But my own take about this is is not that Canadians think that there's a sort of direct causal connection between immigration and housing prices, right? They're, we know the housing prices have been high for a while. They're going up for a number of reasons. So it's not it's not that people are pointing their fingers at immigration as the problem, but I think there is the sense of questioning whether we've made all the preparations we need to welcome you know record number of of newcomers to the country so it's really about that planning that i think this comes down to the the anger element in there too i noticed from uh, from the survey that that you know conservative party supporters were far more likely to say that, there, that there's too much immigration to the country right now than those who back the liberals of the NDP. So the people who aren't in power, for instance, are seeing sort of a negative view on a bunch of things. And perhaps that's part of what we're seeing here as well. Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, it, it, there's a difference between the parties. There has been for, for a long time. And uh, the jump up is much higher for the conservatives. And part of that just could be, you know, the, the government is currently behind the immigration policy. So, you know, naturally, if you're opposed to the government, you start questioning a number of things that they were doing, that that they're doing, you know, as part of your part of your expression of frustration. I think it's worth noting that even though the jump isn't as big, the trend is the same for all the different groups of party right. supporters. So liberals are a little less likely this year to think that we've got the right number of immigrants. Even NDP supporters are just a little, you know, they're much more positive than conservative supporters, but they're a little less positive than they were last year. So the trend is actually quite uniform, even if it's sharper for certain groups. Right. And you also mentioned that three quarters of Canadians, it's down slightly from 85% last year, but three quarters of the Canadians still fundamentally believe immigration is good for the country, good for the economy specifically. Yeah, good for the good for the economy in general. And I think one of the one of the important findings that that sort of just fills in that other side of the coin that we were talking about is when we ask people if they think immigrants make a positive or a negative contribution to the community where they live specifically. Very, very few Canadians say that immigrants have a negative impact on where they live. I think it's something like 9%, right? Which is, you know, in surveys, that's a low, that's a low number. Um, you know, some people are neutral and in the middle, a lot of people think it's it's positive. But the point is that getting getting back to what you said at the beginning, is there some kind of backlash going on? And that's the evidence that I used to say, I really don't think so, right? Most Canadians... Um, are are sort of comfortable with how immigration is, you know, just impacting where they live, uh, but it still comes back to this sort of the question around around planning, right? And and this, of course, we had record numbers of, of immigration last year, so the, the number has been larger than it has been in the past. And I think those who certainly those who oppose this current government do do believe fundamentally that they don't plan for anything properly. So that could be part of what we're seeing here as well. Yeah, and and there is there's a question specifically in the survey. It's not about any particular government. It's not about the liberal government necessarily. It's a question just about governments in general and how good a job they're doing at at planning for the future. And again, that's another question where we see trending in that negative direction. So Canadians are a little less confident in that forward thinking ability of government in general this year than they were even even during the pandemic, where you thought there would have been a little kind of jarring sense that. We may not have been on top of the situation, but the the results were actually a little bit more positive in the pandemic than they are right now. What would you be looking for then uh, in the future for a survey like this when you sort of see the trend lines? Because because when this trend line for this one shows, I mean, there was this sort of agreement that there was too much immigration for quite a while. And then it absolutely shifts sometime in the mid 90s to the other way. And then we've yeah. seen a long trend to 
people disagree that there's too much. Uh, and now we're sort of seeing them come back close together again. What will you be looking for? Uh, this could just be a, a, a blip, right? It, I, I think I think you've got uh, got it just right. The, the the main question now is whether this is a blip or a reset. Um, and uh, I think that really does depend uh, on the economy. It depends on things like interest rates, what's going on with people's mortgages as they uh, get to the end of their initial mortgage period and have to go sit down with the bank and, and see what their payments, all of that will just affect how secure um, Canadians feel about their own future. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, we, ha we have to see how long the whole environment stays this negative, um, and, uh, and how that colors people's perceptions of specific issues around immigration. Maybe let me just throw one more thing in though, because, uh, it's not that I'm, it's not that I just want to look at the, at the good news necessarily, but it is interesting. For instance, we see this big shift on a general question about immigration, but when we ask about refugees and spe specifically, mm -hmm. we're not seeing any, any change on that. Um, uh, refugees are still fairly high up the list of um, uh, the types of immigrants that Canadians would like to see bringing in. And given what's going on in the world these days, you know, in all corners of the world, which you could argue, you know, the negative news in general is affecting that sort of mood here, but it's not affecting how Canadians feel they need to respond to the humanitarian crisis that are unfolding before our eyes. So, Andrew, you know, that that's part of the picture here, too. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, late last week, Immigration Minister Mark Miller unveiled a package of reforms designed to combat fraud in international student admissions and to stop bad actors from preying on those students for gain. Of course, this has become a bit of a problem. There are a lot more international students coming into the country, tens and tens and tens of thousands. Uh, the IRCC forecasts that the number of foreign students applying to come to Canada each year will rise to 1.4 million by 2027. Joining me now is Michael Batista. He's a Toronto lawyer specializing in immigration and refugee law. He's an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto as well. Michael, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Just your initial reaction to the measures and how necessary they were at this point. Well, I think that the measures were very necessary uh, from the perspective of my clients who are the international students. Um, you know, we have seen evidence of them being taken for granted. Um, Western education is a commodity. It's a very valuable commodity. And um, so that creates a real demand. And unfortunately, in Western countries that can offer that education, um, there are some people who are out to, to make money off of the, uh, the demand for an international, for Western education. And uh, we've seen students being taken advantage of. How big of an issue is it? Because I think a lot of people are familiar with sort of, you know, big campuses with lots of international students. Obviously, there's been a lot made recently of what's going on in Quebec with, with the English language universities there and just the sheer number of international students at a, at a school like McGill. And they bring such a value. I mean, the money is obviously much needed by the institutions, but they bring a lot of expertise too. I mean, these are coveted students from around the world. How big of an issue is the darker side of it? I, it is a very big issue. Uh, so from my perspective and what I've been exposed to, what my clients have told me about is the network of recruiters who are sent overseas to recruit international students and are paid by the institutions here in Canada and other Western countries um, 
per student head that makes an application to the school. So you've got these net these networks of of recruiters who are out there basically selling an acceptance letter to to students and nobody's regulating them and they're telling students all kinds of stories about the easy pathway to permanent residence if they do uh, get accepted to an institution. Um, and sometimes they're acting on behind, behalf of institutions that will not result in postgraduate work permits or permits that will allow a student to accumulate work experience that will lead them to permanent residence. And students are paying dearly for uh, not only tuition as international students, but they sometimes pay these recruiters for services in helping them to apply for these institutions. Um, so there's big money to be had and there's very little regulation overseas. So from from my perspective, you know, the real the real uphill battle is going to be kind of how do we tackle these recruiters? And these recruiters aren't just being sent overseas by small private colleges, like big institutions, uh, big, big universities, McGill, University of Toronto, they rely on recruiters to uh, generate applications from international students as well. Right. And the way you describe it, I, I get the I get the sense that there isn't a lot of oversight about how that recruitment is being done or necessarily what the students are being told uh, before they embark on this. Absolutely. They're, they're being told uh, stories about the community in which the schools are located. They're being told stories about, you know, how how easy it is to complete the program. They're being told stories about how easy it is to qualify after you complete the program. It's a, it's a real problem. And I guess, I mean, what we see on the other side, of course, is, is that you have students that come here and that end up not being able to to be able to achieve what they're hoping to achieve. And as you mentioned, it is very expensive. Do you have some sort of examples of where this is, how this plays out once the student arrives? Yeah, absolutely. So I do have some examples. So I think the most common example is, um, so in order to, uh, I'll just give you a little international student 101 in the pathway to permanent residence. It, it used to be that just ha being an international student com completing a Canadian program would create a pathway to permanent residence. Um, but the Stephen Harper government changed that and now it, it requires at least one year of work experience after that education to qualify for permanent residence. So the student has to complete the course of study and has to accumulate at least one year of work experience that's accumulated through what's called a postgraduate work permit that's offered to students. But only certain educational institutions are allowed to issue these, are qualified to issue these, these, uh, these, uh, to, to lead to these postgraduate work permits. Not every, they have to be a designated learning institution. And so the students are being fed a line that the institution they're applying for is a designated learning institution. They get here, they follow the course of studies, and then they file the work permit application and they get a refusal letter from uh, immigration saying, you don't qualify for postgraduate work permit because your your school is not a designated learning institution. Oh, right. And they're devastated. They now have paid all of this money to recruiters to for foreign student fees, and they are left in Canada without the ability to legally work. What do right. they do? <laughs> what do they do? Yeah, what do they do in that case? They're usually out of status at that point. 
Because, I mean, you well know, I mean, the, the number of international students coming to this country, I think it's we're on track to, to record 900,000 this year. I mean, that's a huge number and 1.4 million by 2027. Again, these are huge numbers. You want to make sure. I mean, I understand why the importance of, of having international students at our schools, but you also want to make sure that Canada's reputation as a destination for education is not harmed by these sorts of things uh, as well. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, Canada has that reputation. I think it is uh, attractive to international students. I think that's part of the problem is that there is this demand for Canadian education. Um, but, you know, where there's a demand, there's there a demand all, often attracts unscrupulous actors who will profit from that demand. Michael, thank you so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> Uh, let's go to the Middle East now. Um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today rejected calls for a ceasefire in its ongoing conflict with Hamas. He, uh, he, I mean, there's been a huge uproar of late over the war in Gaza, but Netanyahu said Israel was forced to respond when Hamas attacked first. Have a listen. Israel did not start this war. Israel did not want this war. But Israel will win this war came on the same day that our Foreign Affairs Minister, Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, uh, was calling on Israel to temper its heavy bombardment of Gaza to allow what it would be called a humanitarian pause, not a ceasefire, but a humanitarian pause to allow for sustained humanitarian aid to reach Palestinian civilians, as well as to help some of the estimated 500 Canadians who are in Gaza right now either get out at some point, uh, but certainly allow that aid to reach them. Today in Ottawa, Israelis with time to Canada who are related to people who have been believed to have been killed or kidnapped by Hamas were urging Ottawa to advocate for the release of hostages. They held a press conference today. The families told reporters they appreciate Canada's support for Israel uh, and that they would have to press harder for Hamas to release roughly 240 hostages. Uh, Aaron Broaddutch lives in Toronto but flew to Israel when he learned his sister-in-law, niece and two nephews were likely kidnapped. Children are being held hostage by terrorists. It's just wrong. I, I don't think anyone that we talk to can, you know, with a little bit of humanity and the ability to listen, can disagree with the fact that this is just an atrocious crime. There was a glimmer of hope today. Um, there was one hostage that was rescued by Israeli Defense Forces in Gaza and brought back uh, to Israel today. Tal Heinrich is spokesperson for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and she joins me now. Tal, thank you. Thank you, Ben, for having me on. Some big news today uh, on the hostage front. I know there's been, we interviewed Vivian Silver's son last week. Of course, uh, she's Canadian-Israeli. There's been a lot of concern from the families. Tell me a bit of what, what happened today. So, Ori, um, as far as we know, the IDF uh, spokesperson unit has just put out a statement a few hours ago that she was released during ground operations. Um, she was kidnapped by Hamas terrorists during the massacre of October 7th. Um, she was uh, medically checked. She's in Israel right now. She is doing well as far as uh, the IDF is uh, saying, and she's met with her family. She re reunited with them. Uh, there was also a very, very moving photo that I just saw of her with her mother. I can tell you that for a long time, we didn't have such good and thrilling news in Israel. We're still a nation in very deep mourning. I can't say that it, it, it brings us relief, but um, we sure know that we are heading in the right direction when we exert the pressure on Hamas, both militarily 
and diplomatically, and we hope to achieve these two goals that go hand in hand with the expansion of the ground operation, which is to bring to the dismantlement of the Hamas terrorist regime and also to bring back our sons and daughters. Yeah, a, a difficult balance, I know, because just the, the terrain makes it difficult and, and you don't know where these hostages are. So I imagine today must give some hope to all the other 200 plus families who are waiting for news. Um, and I've also, I, I understand, been been you know applying pressure as well because they want to make sure their loved ones are kept safe in all this. Of course. And the only reason of why Hamas has released uh, four other hostages so far was due to mounting international pressure. And more of that is coming their way. We have warned uh, these terrorists do not hurt the hostages. Justice will be administered to you. There are so many people, unfortunately, that still after 24 days are unaccounted for. I have uh, a friend. His name is Ohad. And just today, the IDF has notified him and his family that his brother, Uriel, is kidnapped, was right. kidnapped into into Gaza. So that means that for 23 days, the family was, uh, well, the, there still are very much tortured, but at least they know something about the, the fate of, of their loved one. And so many families still do not have that confirmation. Yeah. Vivian Silver's family haven't heard from her since the seventh, of course. Tell me tell me about this expanded phase, if you could. What what are the aims of this second stage, so so to speak, of 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 the offensive? So we said that we will further act in in Gaza to bring to the dismantlement of the Hamas regime, and that includes a ground operation. You have to do it from the ground also. Uh, Because, as you know, they have embedded themselves in civilian population. They have bunkers and tunnels and whatnot and command centers underground and under urban facilities like um, mosques and and schools and youth centers and hospitals. In fact, we just released um, the IDF spokesperson just released a very, a very detailed presentation a few days ago about how they are hiding their command center underneath the largest hospital in Gaza. What is cynical use? So we are doing everything possible to maximize the pressure on Hamas and uh, to bring to their surrender, all while doing everything possible to minimize the civilian casualty. We said that we will expand the operation, and this is what we're doing right now. I cannot expand on you know, further military mm. strategy moving ahead for very obvious reasons, but I can tell you that if you just listen to a press conference with the Prime Minister and with uh, the Minister of the Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, they both also said that we are working in cooperation and taking um, the advice of international counterparts, including from the United States. And we see the model of how to act in Gaza pretty much uh, reminiscent of of the model in which uh, the international coalition to defeat ISIS worked in in Syria and in in, in Iraq. So we are in coordination with uh, Washington. Again, we we hope to achieve, we hope and we will achieve the goal. It will just take as long as it will take, you know. Right. Hell, I'm sure you understand that. You know, in Canada, we have both. Um, we 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 have lost seven people in the October seventh uh, attacks. We've have mm-hmm. we believe two hostages, Canadian hostages, being held, oh, wow. including Vivian Silver, who I mentioned earlier. We also have some right. 400 Canadians who are in Gaza right now. So you understand, like countries around the world are looking at this and thinking, how are you going to protect all our citizens? Uh, just on the on the on the civilian side of those still in Gaza, I know it's a complicated situation. What is Israel doing to make sure that civilians are not targeted? 
Well, for more than 20 days now, we have called on the population, the residents of the northern Gaza Strip to evacuate to the safer havens, which we have designated in the south. Um, you know that uh, this is where the heavy fighting will take place. There are particular areas in the north that also we are not targeting because we know that there are civilians there. But uh, an overwhelming majority of the population of the northern Gaza Strip has already evacuated to these areas. We have sent leaflets and, and we have conducted phone calls and and we also uh, announced on every possible channel and including a media channel. So the population there, they know that they have to evacuate because we don't want them to get caught in the crossfire. But you see, Hamas is indeed preventing some Palestinian civilians from uh, moving to the safer zones because this is what they do. They're hiding behind them. They're hiding underneath the buildings where they're located. And they are using these um, Palestinian civilians as human shields. This is what they do, and we always say that Hamas is committing a double war crime by doing so, and not only targeting our population, but also putting their population in harm's way. 400 Canadians are trapped in Gaza. They are living in fear and despair. And as a government, we have a duty to bring them to safety. That was Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie in a speech in Toronto today. Tal Heinrich is spokesperson for Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. She's with me this half hour. Tal, uh, as you've heard, our Foreign Affairs Minister today called for a humanitarian pause, not a ceasefire, a pause. Uh, what is Israel's reaction to allow either more aid to come in or people to get out? So you see, uh, we have stated for obvious reasons that no aid will come in the Gaza Strip from Israeli territory, not as long as our hostages are being held there, but we are allowing in uh, humanitarian aid from the Egypt-Gaza uh, border. That's the Rafah border crossing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that it's it's not a border crossing that we control. Again, it's between Gaza and Egypt, and there's the Red Cross there, and, and I think the World Health Organization and, and other uh, international players there And uh, also the United States is very much involved in in making sure that aid is indeed coming in. The only condition that we have put forward is that this aid cannot end up in the hands of Hamas. And we are examining it, we're checking it, and and we're monitoring uh, where these supplies are going. These are medical supplies and food and water. When you come to talk about fuel, for an example, and and food also, these are things that Hamas uh, terrorists uh, are hoarding, simply hoarding. They have stockpiles of fuel. They have stockpiles of fuel, uh, of food, rather, but they are using them for their war machine. What about the humanitarian pause idea? Is that, is that, I mean, because I think the concern that people have, and I'm I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how important the concerns of a country like Canada are right now in Israel, given all that's happened, but the concerns here are simply, we have civilians amongst the civilian population in Gaza and would like to see amongst others and want to make sure that there's ample opportunity uh, for, for them to be safe. Right. I think that's what it boils down to. So I know ceasefire has been a word that. We want them to be safe. We want them to be safe. And if we could, we we would want to see them out of the Gaza Strip. But you see, um, again, Egypt shares a border with with Gaza. That's the Rafah border crossing. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you that in the first days of of the war, there was an attempt, in fact, to get some foreign nationals out of there. And I know that Hamas were blocking their way. Again, this is what they're doing. They want to increase civilian suffering. They want to increase civilian casualties because they hope two things. First, they hope that Israel wouldn't target these areas and that they can hide behind them. 
and save their terrorist skin, it will not help them because we will get to them one by one. And second, they hope that, you know, international pressure will mount on Israel so that Israel will stop its operation and, and not target their, you know, um, terrorist regime, which right. is also not going to happen. We have defined a very clear goal for this operation that Hamas can be no longer, that Israelis will will no longer live to, next to this terror enclave. It, it's simply not possible. We said that by the end of this, we want to make sure that Hamas will lack the military capabilities and will lack the motivation to ever, ever hurt us as they did on October 7th. And keep in mind that it's not only what happened on October 7th, as brutal and and disgusting as it was, it's also the constant firing of rockets. More than 8,150 rockets were, were fired at us since the, the outbreak of this war. And throughout 16 years, you know how many, we're talking about tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of, of, of thousands of, of, of missiles. It's not a reality that we can sustain. It's not a reality that we will tolerate. And this is the only reason why we're operating there now. How, how are with the greater region? I know there was concerns mm-hmm. about it, the the war spreading to to Lebanon. Obviously, Hezbollah there. Um, how are the, how is that going? How are the negotiations going? How how frequent are people talking to each other right now to try to confine the scope of this conflict? So we certainly hope that the war, uh, the counteroffensive against Hamas in Gaza, does not develop into a full fledged war on another front um, against another Iranian proxy, um, Hezbollah in the north. It's not something that we want. But if we come under attack by Hezbollah, we will react decisively, just like we're reacting in Gaza. This will obviously be very uh, it will be disastrous for the population in Lebanon that has suffered so much in recent years. And we will hold the state of Lebanon responsible for any attack or any threat emanating from its territory. But, you know, we know that Hezbollah does not care much about the Lebanese people, just like Hamas doesn't really care about the Palestinian people. Uh, that will be devastating to them. And it will be very tragic because if we have to, uh, we will set back Lebanon years. A last question, Tal. If you look at, uh, for a Canadian audience, uh, and this mm-hmm. could be an American audience as well, when they see images of what happened on the 7th, they're obviously horrified. When they see images of what's happening to civilians in southern Gaza right now or in Gaza, they're also horrified. These are countries like Canada that don't live on the front lines of conflict, right? What would you tell them? What would you like them, what, from your point of view, what would you like them to know? Listen, uh, obviously, what happened here um, in Israel, and I'll start with that, it's uh, the worst atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Um, The raping, the torturing, the chopping off of body parts, the, you know, burning of entire families alive. This is unfathomable. And we cannot let terrorists get away with what they did, because if we do, They will keep doing it again and again and again. And guess what? They won't only do it here in Israel. They will do it in other places. We cannot let pure evil continue to live side by side with us. Uh, There is also suffering in Gaza right now, but we don't want that. The only people who want Gaza and Israelis to suffer are Hamas terrorists. And for that reason, they must be gone. They must surrender. They must be dismantled. Wars are a tragic thing, but that, that's what they want. They want more tragedies, more casualties. And, and the best way to finish this war is to finish Hamas once and for all. Hal Henrik, thank you. Thank you, Ben. 
the issue of airlines and accessibility has come up quite a few times over the past 10 days or so. First, no less than Canada's chief accessibility officer, Stephanie Cadieu, uh, took to social media last week after Air Canada forgot her wheelchair in Toronto as she traveled to Vancouver. Uh, she was quoted as saying, or she wrote on social media, a very well popular social media post, at least it was shared a lot. Uh, she was quoted as saying, this was immensely frustrating and dehumanizing and I was furious. Of course, uh, she said the tweet has been widely viewed and shared. Air Canada responded, my chair has been returned to me. She posted that on LinkedIn, I believe. And then over the weekend, another report, this time dating back to late August, when a BC man who uses a wheelchair says he was forced to drag himself off an Air Canada flight in Las Vegas after the airline failed to provide the assistance required for him to safely exit the plane. The Canadian Transportation Agency says it's reviewing that one. All of this comes at a time when social media, as you can tell, for uh, definitely for the case of Stephanie Cadieu, because she posted that to social media. We actually requested an interview with her last week, and she said, listen, there's been a lot of attention paid to this. I'd rather you talk to someone else about accessibility issues, period. So we decided we would take that advice and do exactly that. But social media has really offered an avenue for people to talk about accessibility in a way that they weren't able to before. They can control the narrative. They can control when it's on. They can highlight issues that they think people need to hear. Uh, and Spencer West is one of the leading voices in that movement using, uh, he's a global keynote speaker, content creator and activist, uh, author of the best-selling Standing Tall, My Journey. And he started a documentary called Redefine Possible, the story of Spencer West. He also uses a lot of social media to try to raise awareness about accessibility issues. He lost both legs to a genetic disease as a child. They were amputated. So he's become, again, one of the leading voices in that movement over time. Uh, he has more than 4.4 million viewer, uh, followers on TikTok, where he provides a set, steady stream of videos about the world through his eyes. Here's an example. Folks, a few weeks ago, it took all of my willpower not to laugh out loud. I was in conversation with uh, someone out in the community that I just met that was non-disabled, and they said to me, oh, you know, I have a friend who was in accident and is now paralyzed and is a wheelchair user too. And then paused and looked at me as if I was supposed to follow up with, oh, what's their name? <laughs> Maybe I know them, or sure, I see them at the meetings. <laughs> We don't all know each other. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. And also, let's maybe not share other people's trauma with complete strangers. Yeah, so you can see that Spencer uses sort of a mixture of humor and information, right? To try to, it's not about shaming. It's not about making people feel bad. It's about pointing out uh, some of the inaccuracies, or at least some of the inconsistencies in the way that people uh, talk about the disabled. Uh, again, Spencer West, motivational speaker, content creator, author of Standing Tall, My Journey, joins me now. Spencer, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, how are things? You, you seem like you're, you're always on the go, that it's always busy. I wonder where you have time to make the videos, but that you keep making them. Yeah, in, in between speaking engagements, I was literally just speaking at my university that I graduate, graduated from. I hadn't been there in 20 years, um, wow. just yesterday. So I usually will create content like all in one day, so then it can all go out um, and I don't have to do it every day. <laughs> what was? I, where did you go to school? Yeah, I studied at Westminster University in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm originally oh, wow. from the United States. Right. How was that? What's it like to go back after all that time? You know, it was really lovely. The campus has obviously changed. When I went there, it was just a college. It was a bit smaller. It's now got the university status, which is really cool. Um, in some ways, it was very much the same. In some ways, there were some some new additions. It was it was really lovely. What did you find in terms of inspiration for sort of some of the videos that you, that you show? Because often what it is, what I find really enlightening about the videos that you make is that they're, they're just little slices of life and they just show But you always... It, 
I always learn something. Yeah, that's always been my goal with 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 content is is how do we make something really fun and entertaining? And then how do we sneak in a little bit of education at the same time? And basically in the day, I'm just creating content that I would want to watch personally. Right. So that's sort of why I do the juxtaposition of the two, because both of those would feel important to me. What did you find on on campus that uh, that had changed or that you wanted to highlight and show and show your followers? Yeah, I mean, uh, there'll be some content coming out soon, but I just wanted yeah. to show some of the new buildings and just in general, like, what the campus looked like. And they're a very progressive campus for the city that they are in. Um, they were one of the first universities to march in the Pride Parade in Salt Lake City. Um, the, the lecture series on, is on equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we, no topic was off limits. We could talk about whatever we wanted. So it was, you know, with the political climate in the United States, it was nice to um, just to have an open, honest conversation. Yeah, Salt Lake City's changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, I've I've actually never been, sadly, but I mean, the 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 image of it back when I was growing up in the '80s was of a pretty, a pretty strict place, and it's it's great to see that it that things have changed. Yeah, at least at least from the university side, I, I you know I didn't have as much time in the city, so I'm not sure what the general vibe is in the state or city, but on campus, it was it's it's a, a pretty decently safe space. Yeah. Tell me about the videos themselves, because one of the things I find most interesting is when you answer questions from your followers and that's, and that you must get, you must, I was wondering how many you get. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like I get sort of like the same three or four questions over and over and over again. So they typically are, you know, what happened to my legs because I'm, I'm, my legs were removed when I was a kid due to genetic disease. So that's the first question. People are really interested in how I use the washroom for some reason. I don't know why that's a thing, but that's the one we've made, made the most videos around just because it's so absurd that like I, we just make the absurd videos to go with along with the comments and questions that we get. And then people usually want to know how I drive a car and can I swim? Those are like the most popular questions that I get over and over and over again. <laughs> that's interesting. I, mean, I wonder why that is, because it certainly doesn't seem I mean, I guess those are kind of the questions that you might ask, I mean, certainly the going to the bathroom stuff, that might be the kind of question that you wouldn't feel comfortable asking someone unless you felt comfortable with them. And maybe that's the beauty of, of, of the social media presence is that people now feel comfortable to ask you questions that they might be too embarrassed to ask somebody on the street, for instance, or somebody they barely know. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is more, um, it seems more autonomy online for people to ask those questions. They do happen in real life too. I wouldn't say quite as often, but I have gotten all of those in real life before. And there's a balance, right? Like, you know, on social media, I've set it up as sort of an educational space and that's cool. And, and I'm happy to answer them every now and then, but like when I'm out in public and those sorts of things, it's like, that's sort of my time. So I, I don't do a lot of answering of questions um, in person, just because I sometimes have to protect my own emotional health, you know? <laughs> yeah. Are there questions? I mean, I guess the videos that aren't the questions are the videos are videos about the questions you'd wish they were asking you. <laughs> and that that's what that's what that's what those are. But there must be questions you'd like followers to ask more. Yeah, you know, I think what I what I try to do with my content and what, what I'm starting to see is, you know, I'm trying to give people a glimpse into the lived experience of someone like myself who's queer and disabled mm -hmm. and what that experience looks like both positively and negatively. And now people are starting to ask those types of questions around accessibility, around how do I be more supportive towards the queer community? How do I be more supportive in my community for folks that are disabled? And so for me, those are the questions that I love the most and that I'm really starting to see more of. There's always going to be questions about my body. That's just how it goes. But it's those other questions that I really appreciate. How has the reaction been from the queer community? Because I grew up in Montreal, obviously spent time at, you know, at Pride when it was beginning. I had friends growing up who were gay. and But it was, it was mm -hmm. a pretty body conscious culture when I was young. And I'm wondering, if, is it still that way? And has it also been changing? 
Yeah, it's definitely it's I it's definitely still that way. At least when it comes to gay men, I think gay men are definitely that there's a certain body type that you have to fit into that I've never really fit into. I, I definitely am a fit person from walking on my hands so much, but I don't fit that that queer stereotype. And I live in Toronto, so the the queer village here is very inaccessible to me. So it made it made dating very challenging. I'm very lucky. I have a, a wonderful partner. We've been dating almost a, a year and a half. So it's possible to find love, but it, I found it very, very challenging. It was like a, a, another level of, of challenge that I, I, I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I, I mean, I know the area around church and so on. I, it's funny, again, because until you start, one of the things that I found um, educational is that you start to look at the world a little bit differently. You start to see the inaccessibility that you mightn't have seen before. And thinking thinking back to sort of that church street area, I don't, I don't ever remember it being somewhat inaccessible. Now that you mention it, it is. It is. It's a lot. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most places have stairs, and even if you can, the few places you can get in, typically the the washrooms are in the basement. So it's not like I can really go and like have a great time. You know, I can go for an hour and then I've got to go. Right. Uh, tell me. I mean, the the whole experience of making the videos, and one of the things that uh, that I, I saw you talk about in another interview was that it just allowed you creative control, but also control within your own environment. So you could, you know, in the, in the past, sort of how you got a message out was pretty much controlled by who controlled the medium, uh, who could watch, how many people could watch, and now with social media, you sort of it's kind of you're you're in control, and that's a big deal. Yeah, it really is, because historically disabled folks, our stories have been told through a non-disabled lens by non-disabled people for the most part. And so what social media does is it allows folks like myself and so many other disabled folks to take control of the narrative, to tell and show our lived experience of what it's actually like from the person itself rather than someone that's non-disabled that's portraying a character or folks that that are in the media that are just relaying a story, which I think is really important because what happens is we get this weird stereotype in the disabled community that like, a, we can't tell our own stories, or B, we don't want to tell our own stories, um, or C, we're just not given the ability to to do so. Or there's also the stereotype of like, we don't want all the same things that non-disabled people want. And of course we do. We want love and we want relationship and we want to be successful and we want sex and all of those things that come along with the human experience. And so by us having control of the narrative, we get to show all of that. You educate people often on the right terminology. And I find even as a broadcaster, I get tongue-tied sometimes on saying, you know, lives without legs. Is that the right way of saying it, right? I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, language is so nuanced, right? And it's always changing and always evolving. For me, um, I I like the terms disabled or Mm non-disabled. Because statistically, um, the idea that you will acquire disability either temporarily or permanently is quite high. Mm -hmm. So we're the one marginalized community that everyone will experience at some point in their life. So for me, it's I like non-disabled or disabled, but everybody's different, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, when you when you think about the videos that you're going that you're creating, have you seen a difference? Do you feel like you're you're moving the dial? I know that's a very cliched term, and it's hard to tell, but do you feel like you and many others are having an impact on 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 society in the way that that disabled people are viewed? I think so. I'd like to think so. You know, a lot of my content because it's online all you can do is take people for their word, right? So I don't know what's actually happening in real life for the most part, but I do get quite a few comments on folks that like this helped me realize that there are things in my neighborhood that aren't accessible that I've been asking about and advocating for or being more of an ally to the queer people in my life or, or on my on my, the block where I live, um, those sorts of things. Or I didn't know this about you or, the, or here's some, these, these are great ways to be an ally that now I can take these out in the community. So the response online has been really lovely. You know, whether that translates into actual action, it's hard for me to to be able to quantify that, but or, or qualify it, I guess. But 
for me, just the idea that people at least starting to think about it, I think is really good because any type of social justice work, the disability community is always typically the community that's to be thought of last. So um, I, yeah, we're hoping to like join the conversation in all aspects everywhere. <laughs> yeah. What kind of, there are a few stereotypes that you talked about a lot and a couple that I, I don't think I'd actually understood until I sort of watched you and others talk about them. One is sort of the living with disabilities idea, that one that, that, that you've talked about a lot. And the other one was the hero, the sort of the lionizing one that that's also that you, that you all don't, that people don't dis- disagree with it or dislike it, but don't think it's particularly productive. Yeah, I mean, a lot in, in our community, we would call it like inspiration porn, like a lot of disabled folks are used as inspiration porn, meaning like, and and I, I realize that it, oftentimes it can be well intentioned of like, wow, you're so inspiring. If you can get up and go to work every day, that'll motivate me to get up and go to work every day. Right. And although I know the sentiment is trying to be nice, the subtext of that is if our roles are reversed and I was you, I wouldn't want to get up and go to work every day. And so it feels a bit backhanded, right? And like me wanting to go to work isn't inspiring. Like that's just what what I choose to do with my life and, and how I want to live it. And so I think that's why a lot of disabled folks find that really frustrating, really um, angering, because at the end of the day, we're just trying to live a successful life. And the only thing that's actually stopping me from living my life is ableism and the barriers that exist in the world. It's not my disability. My body's actually fine. It's all the other things that exist that don't have to, but we allow to exist. Yeah. And, and you've also talked about uh, at times about just pride, pride in being who you are, regardless of who you are and, be, and, and having other people not look at it as sort of um, with with any sympathy, but just empathy, maybe understanding that of, of the barriers that are out there for people who aren't like you, regardless of what their circumstances are. Yeah. You know, as a kid growing up in the 80s, you know, disability was seen very differently. We were told we wanted to overcome it. We didn't want to be seen as disabled. And now as I've gotten older and and the world has progressed, we started to learn how harmful that is. And it's so important to be your authentic self and to lean into that and to help people understand that it's it's not a bad thing. You know, so long we, for so long we had, you know, telethons from Jerry Lewis to all those sorts of things of raise money for these poor kids that are struggling. And it's like, that's not who we are. We have full, beautiful lives. They just might look different and we need different accommodations uh, when it comes to accessibility. But at the end of the day, we all want the same things that non-disabled folks want too. And so now, and you're seeing in real time, me unlearning some of those things and relearning how to be authentic and how to educate folks on seeing the disability community in a different light. Do you have a favorite video of, of the ones you've made? Did you have one that you said, ah, that one? I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> there are two that I, that I really love just because it really pushed people's buttons a little bit. And I think it was good talking about not using an accessible stall in a washroom unless you absolutely need it right. or um, taking the elevator instead of an escalator or stairs or the opposite, taking the escalator or stairs in, uh, in lieu of an elevator if you don't need it. And these were hard concepts for people. People's privilege were challenged and there was a lot of angry comments, but I think it was good. These are things we need to think about in regards to I don't have any choice. It's that one stall and it's that one elevator. And if other people are using it when they don't need to, then you're taking that choice away from me. Spencer, uh, thank you so much. A, a great a great pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 
We've been talking for this show about where to go and where not to go on a first date. And because there's been a list released after a viral TikTok video, there's been a list of 28 places you should not. Now, I should specify this is an A, an American list. B, who, who wrote it? No one really knows. And C, it is the 28 places that you should not bring a woman on a first date, to be specific. But it got us thinking about the bigger issue of where shouldn't you go on a first date, period. So some of the ones mentioned here, uh, Cheesecake, it's American, don't forget, Cheesecake Factory, Applebee's, Chili's, Chipotle, Olive Garden, The Movies, Your House, any fast food chain, uh, Wingstop, Red Lobster, a buffet, IHOP, Denny's, The Gym, Church, Starbucks, coffee dates, ice cream dates, family functions, movie night, somewhere that requires a long drive, bowling nightclubs, hookah bar, a bar for just drinks, Waffle House, sports events. So there you have it, all 28. Uh, didn't Russell Wilson bring Sierra, his wife, to Waffle House for her birthday? And Anyway. I, I digress. Um, but those are the places you're not supposed to go on a first date. Uh, in mem- We were talking about Friends earlier in the show, and it got me thinking about the show Friends. And there's a famous bad first date on Friends that has nothing to do with where they are. But here's Jennifer Aniston as Rachel, and I think Michael is the date's name. It's John Lovitz, the actor. Have a listen. Everything looks so good. I think I'm going to have the chicken. <laughs> I, I just have to say this. You're really beautiful. Oh, wow, that's that's very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> I'm kind of funny looking. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, come on, you're way out of my league. Everybody in here knows it. That that guy over there is probably saying, ooh, I shout with him. He must be rich. <laughs> well, I'm not. <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess then the joke's on him. (laughs) So what do you think you want to order? I'm real excited about that chicken. I'm not funny either. (laughs) So if you were thinking, well, he's not that good looking, but maybe we'll have some laughs. That ain't going to (laughs) happen. There it is, friends, uh, in memory of at Matthew Perry. Of course, not a Matthew Perry scene, but Jennifer Aniston and John Lovitz there. Yes, sometimes it doesn't matter where you go, although apparently going out to a restaurant for dinner is a bit of a bit of a loaded one because it means sitting there for quite a while and figuring out stuff like that. I mentioned earlier there was a TikTok video that kind of set this all in motion uh, where this woman's brought to a cheesecake factory uh, for, I guess, their first date. Have a listen to what she says. This is the Cheesecake Factory. This is the Cheesecake Factory, y'all. What's the problem with that? This is a chain restaurant. Who takes someone that looks like this to a chain restaurant? You want to talk about it? I'm I'm fine with talking about Uh it, even in front of them. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about it. Yeah. Come on, get up on in the car. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, she's live streaming the whole thing. Dating. It's changed. It's changed since I was since I was younger. Um, so yeah, what a 28 places you shouldn't bring a woman on a first date. Number one, the Cheesecake Factory, amongst many others. Uh, Laura Bellotta is host of the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. She's a dating expert. You can find her at singleinthecity.ca. Laura, thank you. Of course, of course. So I, I haven't been, I was saying I haven't been on a first date since I met my wife and we went on our first date more than, more than a decade ago. Now uh, we went to Ikea. It just happened to, 
happened out that way. Probably not the best choice, but it was original at the time. Uh, but I saw that list that I was mentioning to you of all the places that um, you shouldn't bring a first date. And I really wanted to get some advice for listeners on the do's and don'ts of first dates. What is the golden rule, do you think? Well, I tell them to be punctual. You definitely want to arrive on time or just a little bit early, not too early, of course. Um, you want to dress appropriately. You know, you want to choose an outfit that suits the location and activity. It doesn't have to be super formal, but it should be neat and clean. And you need to be comfortable in what you are wearing. You don't want to be right. fidgeting with your clothes. You want to definitely be yourself. Your authentic Authenticity self. Authenticity is key. So many people pretend to be somebody else. And that's not good because the, you know, they're gonna figure you out eventually. <laughs> yeah. 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 The real you is gonna, gonna be there before before long. What about locations? Because a lot of what came up in this list, I mean, we don't have to talk about the list too too much. It was just a jumping off point for me, but there were a lot of things in there, a lot of don'ts. And I was just wondering, uh, I suppose I've always thought you should bring someone to a place you think they'll like, but also a place where you feel comfortable too, because you don't want it to be, as you mentioned, you want to be able to be relaxed in that environment. Yeah, well, definitely. Okay, home dates are definitely off limits. Yes. And some people still do this bad idea. This person is a stranger. Stranger danger is real. So you need to go somewhere where you're in public, people can see you. I love walking dates, um, activity based dates. Some people don't like if you refer back to that list, there are women that would probably shoot a guy if uh, <laughs> she he suggested a walking or coffee date. I like coffee dates, though. I know I know that some people don't like coffee dates because they feel that, um, you know, the person like if a woman may feel that the guy is being cheap. Right. Uh, but I think it's a great way to just, you know, banter back and forth. Um, I think dinner dates. Mm, I'm not a big fan of dinner dates. Why I, not? I feel yeah. like, well, what if you don't have a lot in common with the person or uh. you don't like the person uh, really? And maybe you just don't even like talking to them. And then you have to sit there for, I don't know, one and a half to two hours. And that can be quite torturous. Right. So you're stuck there. That's so why maybe, I'm not a big, like I, okay. So maybe a better second or third date then if you go out for dinner, like you need to know that you get along, then you go to somewhere where yeah, see, it's, it's a longer process. Yeah. So my suggestion is to keep the first date simple, a meet and greet. Uh, is there a connection or not? Now, if you want to hop on a video call to vet them and screen them first, that's okay too. But keep in mind that it's it's better than a phone call. And um, meeting up in, in person is really where you're going to get the best sense for what the person is like. So that's what I suggest. I Because I, listen, it's so expensive for guys these days. Okay. Um, and also, you have to keep in mind, you're... You're meeting people where? You're meeting people online. And think about it. Guys may be meeting two to three ladies a week. Right. And so if he's taking all these women out on, on dinner dates, how expensive would that be for the poor guy? And with inflation costs nowadays... So, I don't know, Laura, if, if they're taking three or four people out a week, I'm not, I don't know if I'm feeling too sympathetic. What about for women for taking, I mean, sometimes women take men out, right? What, I mean, is it the same rules apply? Sort of, you want to go somewhere where you're comfortable and, and I guess, you know, really, you don't want to be spending too much. You don't want to be splashing too much out, I guess, is what it boils down to, right? It Before is. you start to know each other a bit. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of women taking men out on ah. a first date. I'm a mm -hmm. little traditional and old school, although I know that 
that is becoming a lot more acceptable these days. But listen, I talk to and interview a lot of women on this topic, and they still prefer a man to be courteous, to be a gentleman and pay for the first date. <laughs> yeah, that comes up a lot, doesn't it? Sort of, you know, the, when the bill arrives and, and everyone stares at it. And, and guys will say, well, what if she asks me out? Okay, but don't you want to make a really great impression on her if you do like her? I get it. Let's just say she asks you out, you go on that date, but you like her, you really fancy her. Are you going to really let her pick up the tab? I mean, I would allow her to pick up the tab. I wouldn't allow her to pick up the tab. I would pick up the tab. Right. Yeah. You, yes. I, I I think that makes that makes complete sense. And also, I mean, uh, tell me a bit about about because my dating life sort of didn't exist around the, the online dating part of it. And I, I would be it'd be curious to know, I mean, how much does knowing that much about the person, because you can see a lot about them now, right? Like you can learn a lot about somebody with social media and online that you wouldn't have known 20 years ago. You wouldn't have had to access it to that. But I suppose a lot of it's not necessarily that real either. Like you're, you gotta, you gotta judge. You have to judge. Um, you, you really have to vet. You have to ask questions. Um, listen, online dating can be a great tool to meet someone, but it has its cons too. You know, it has its pros, it has its cons because it can feel like a part-time job. It can be very time consuming. And there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, may write a lot about themselves, but they're being dishonest, which can be very disappointing. So in, in one sense, yes, you can learn about somebody by reading a profile, but are they being honest in their profile? (laughs) So that's why you need to get on a, phone call with them or get them on a video chat first. That's what I suggest um, anyways. And then before you meet up in person um, and just don't waste time. I think that's where the issue comes in. People waste a lot of time with the wrong people. So you just need to, you know, trust your gut and pay attention, pay attention to the red flags. If you've been chatting with this person for quite a while and they don't mention anything about meeting up and you mention it and they disregard what you're saying, then just move along. Well, people will just, you know, keep entertaining the wrong people when really you shouldn't. And that's where you get burnt out. And if you do get burnt out, take a step back, regroup, and go back in with a new perspective. So post yeah. new pictures, keep it fresh. You should be changing your pictures every six months, regardless. If you change your hair color, you should change your pictures. Um, any sort of changes, you should switch up your photos. What's your, what's your opinion about sort of off the wall first dates? I mean, where you sort of go somewhere like an activity, for instance, like we'll go play mini golf or we'll go play ping pong where you're sort of demanding an activity of the other person. Is that okay? Or do you really think that it should be sort of neutral ground, just get to know each other a little bit first before you start putting kind of the bells and whistles on stuff or the challenges? No, I think that activity dates are actually fantastic because uh, you're doing something to create, uh, sorry, you're doing something together, which creates a shared experience and memories. And then this can also help build a stronger connection and give you something to talk about, right? Um, While you're doing it, I feel like activity dates are less awkward. I feel that traditional dinner dates can be more awkward um, because your they provide more of a built-in focus and, and topic of conversation. So I'm 
all four activity dates. Uh, I feel like the interactions can be a lot more natural as well, especially when the two of you really enjoy what the activity is and you're enjoying each other's company makes the date a lot more fun. So yeah. I'm a big fan of activity dates. Way, way yes. more than dinner dates. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 I get I get why you, the dinner date is, is, is challenging because you're right. It's a long period of time. It's often at night. People are, you know, and, and there's a lot of pressure in it. It does sometimes feel like a very long job interview. And I'm sure that's not uh, that's not what the, the atmosphere you want to you want to create in that situation. No. Um, you must get a lot of questions about about first dates, because I know certainly if you're if you're um, online dating, there there are a lot of opportunities for first dates and, and there's pressure. I, I guess people get used to them, uh, but you must get a lot of questions about what to do and what not to do on, on the first on the first meeting. I do. And we went through some of the do's, but I can probably go through some of the don'ts. Sure. Like you don't want to dominate the conversation ever. You want to make sure it's a there's a two way street. So you're asking questions. You're listening at the same time. You don't want to talk about anything too controversial. So you want to stay away from things like politics, which <laughs> can get quite heated nowadays, let me tell you. Uh, things like religion or don't talk about exes. I, it amazes me on how many people still talk about their exes on a first date. Wow. That just shows the other person that you're clearly not over that relationship. Like, why are you bringing it into this relationship? Or... You're hanging on to, you know, like negative emotions. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, put your put your phone away. <laughs> yes. Guilty. Guilty. Yes. You do that on well, a date? Well, I mean, you know. Well, maybe with wife, your yes. wife. You guys have been together for a while. It's still, a little different. Still a little different. But, but I get your point. I get your point. Yeah. And some people, they talk too much, like about their personal information. You know, keep things private until you get to know each other. TMI. Tell, TMI yes. Yeah, TMI. You don't have to tell people everything. And that's why I always, I always suggest a one-hour date rule. This way you don't get foot-in-the-mouth disease. Because when you start talking to someone, you start feeling comfortable. And then you start saying things that you probably shouldn't be saying. Not right away anyways. And yeah. then things light, right? Don't rush things. People are always trying to rush relationships. But you don't know this person. So... Let the date unfold naturally. Don't rush your date or put them put any pressure on them, um, as well as early relationships. Don't put a lot of pressure on the person that you're dating. Take your time. Again, this person is a complete stranger. We get I all gaga yeah. over them, but at the end of the I'm, day, I imagine too what you with what you just said. The sort of you know, don't stick your foot in your mouth and so on. You're probably not drinking too, too much. It's probably a really do a really... not drink. Yes, do not overindulge in alcohol, especially when you go speed dating. I host speed dating events, and I've had that happen. I'm sure you've before, seen it. Where I've had to kick guys out from the from the uh, start. <laughs> Laura, I I really appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. James, Holly, Brian, all season long you worked your fingers to the bone. You sewed up limbs and shrunk from heads. You smashed and torched and bloodied up delicious desserts. I've come to one conclusion. You are all possessed. <laughs> With the ability to become this year's grand champion. Here in the Halloween Baking Championship finale. 
until he says baking. I don't know if you actually know that's a baking show, the Food Network's Halloween Baking Championship. As I was saying off the top, some people kind of, eh, Halloween, take it or leave it. Some people get into it. And then there are those who love Halloween. And everyone has that friend who's just a Halloween fanatic. And my next guest, I think, falls into that last category. Uh, she's the owner of Punk Rock Pastries in Burnaby, uh, suburb of Vancouver. And she has been, as he mentions, one of those Halloween folks. Uh, Holly Fraser is has done very well. We're going to let her share the news. Done very well on the Food Network's Halloween Baking Championship. You should have seen some of the things they've been making, though. It's pretty. It's you need quite the imagination to come up with some of the stuff uh, that's been go, that's been there. I think the first episode was back on September September 11th. It's been it's been a, a couple of months now, nearly since this started. But lots of different stuff, like um, a cake in the shape of a Halloween candy bucket filled with guts, fingers intestines and a severed wow a severed hand uh, holly fraser of punk rock pastries joins me now holly uh, thank you so much hi ben how you going i'm well i'm well so tonight was the finale and i wanted to find out from you what happened so tonight was the finale um and it was very nerve-wracking but very amazing at the same time and i was crowned Halloween, Halloween baking championship champion, I should say. That's awesome. So you are the the Halloween, the Halloween freak, baking so to speak. champion. Yeah, oh, oh, that's I'm definitely am. Uh, what was your what was your winning your winning recipe or what was your winning creation? So I we had to make um, three new attractions for the carnival. Uh, there was a fun house, which was mine. There was the Hall of Lost Souls, which was Ryan's. <laughs> Um, and there was the two-headed monsters, which was James. So I got the, you know, the pretty cool one. I got the fun house. What did you put in said fun house? So my fun house cake, it's called a cakescape and it was made of three different cakes and we had to, you know, show what this, you know, new fun house attraction was going to be. So I ended up making a passion fruit cake, uh, with a sour lemon buttercream, uh, then with a raspberry white chocolate fluatine crunch on the inside. And it was amazing. The whole time I was making it, I was eating it as well. They don't show that on the camera, but I kept eating the spare stuff. <laughs> so I ate way too much on that show. <laughs> Good, good. And how do you come up with it? Because one never thinks, I mean, I've seen Halloween themed things, but you know, you go to the grocery store and it about as, about as elaborate as it gets is like the, the pumpkin face on the, on the muffin or the, or the cupcake, right? That's about as elaborate as it gets. But what you've been doing has been absolutely, uh, it's been out of this world. I'm, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> I um, actually add a lot of like art into my um, pastries and creations. And, you know, just in a normal day life, I'll see something and go, how can I turn that into cake? Um, and then I work on it and I try and figure it out and it just happens. Wild. Yeah. So, and you made some other, I mean, I, I mentioned the one because I was reading about the, 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 candy bucket with all the stuff in it. That's, that sounds, I mean, some of it was, some of it was pretty ghoulish. Yeah, so we I ended up making a tiramisu, um, and I did like a severed hand on top, and then you know some fingers and stuff like that, and I made some guts with a meat uh, processor. <laughs> so doing some things they haven't seen on the show before. Um, so I went a little bit crazy because you know I wanted to go my first episode in. I wanted to show them what I could do, and went out with a bang. Yeah, well, that's fantastic, and I gathered this was this, you were the were you the lone Canadian, the lone Canadian entry on it, who lives here. 
Yeah, I yeah, I was. Everyone else was American. So I was like, oh, well, well I'm the only one representing there you up go. north. <laughs> yeah, you'll know we love that. <laughs> there you go, wave the flag. I guess, tell me a bit about how that spills over into, into your day-to-day work at uh, Punk Rock Pastries. Can you find the same kind of stuff? Do you make the same kind of stuff for the for the average punter, as they would say back in the, as they would say in the UK? I actually do this every day. So my right. bakery does specialize in weird, horror, like crazy things. We do anything that's not your normal. Um, so you can come into our bakery and there's something different every you know couple of weeks. And it's always something weird. It's not something you're going to find at another bakery. It's not your typical eclair. It's usually something like brains or, you know, an eclair that looks like hot dog. And, you know, it even has got that weird taste of a hot dog, but it's really good. Really? Oh, wow. Uh, so tomorrow must be a big day. Are you all set? Oh, uh, kind of set. I'll be at work at one in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is we're well past your bedtime, aren't we? Oh, it, yeah. Baker's hours are crazy, but um, we, uh, me and my team, we're pretty prepared. Uh, it's going to be a really busy day. The weekend was crazy as well, so we haven't seen Halloween this busy since we've been open. Really? What do you think that? Why do you think that is? I mean, I get the impression too. There was I just saw a lot more people out this year on Saturday night, sort of dressed up, going places. People looked like they were really back in the Halloween spirit this year. I guess it was a bit quiet for a couple of years there. Yeah, I think it's like everybody's starting to have their parties again, and they're really starting to enjoy it, get-togethers, you know, go out, have those Halloween parties, and have a lot of fun. So we've seen a lot of people come in, and they're you know grabbing stuff for family get-togethers or you know. Party, work parties and things like that and like it's amazing to see how many people are actually doing things this year what do you have what's what's on what's on tap for tomorrow anything in anything in particular on tap for the halloween the day of the day of well i'm making raspberry mousse brains um, <laughs> I have yes. um, a cupcake that's called the Sinley S'mores and it's got a severed finger on top and it's actually chocolate chili and it's like chocolate overload. Um, we have our traditional uh, chocolate truffle heart cakes. Um, so they look like a realistic heart, bleed like blood and all. It's bleeding. It's great. <laughs> wow. That's the, uh, so tell me about your love of Halloween. Is this something that's been sort of, of, of something you've, you've enjoyed since you were since you were young and just carried it all the way through? Yeah, so I've always loved Halloween. Um, We didn't get to have it because I grew up in Australia. We didn't have Halloween. But I was always, you know, loved the horror movies, loved, you know, sci-fi, everything like that. And when I eventually moved to Canada 12 years ago, um, I got to experience Halloween for the first time and it was stuck. I was like, every day is Halloween now. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think I was talking. We were talking to someone from New Zealand last week who mentioned the same thing that they didn't really have much in the way of Halloween. Why? I, I, you know, I think growing up in Canada and also being so exposed to the U.S., um, I never realized that it wasn't wasn't popular everywhere. Sort of, you know, in the usual kind of Commonwealth countries. So it's not a big deal in in trick or treating, at least, or Halloween itself wasn't a yeah. big deal traditionally in in, in Australia. No, I never got to go trick-or-treating. The first time I got to go trick-or-treating was when I took my son (laughs) trick-or-treating. So for me, it was just as exciting for him. Um, And it was amazing. And I wish I could, like, transport myself and be that kid again and, you know, enjoy it. Because seeing the kids light up and seeing their faces on Halloween is the best. It is. We were talking last week about when is it too old to trick-or-treat. And, of course, the answer is never. Never if you're into it, right? Never if you're into it. No, like, you know, if I have teenagers come to my door, if I had an adult come to my door, I'll give them candy. (laughs) 
I was going to say, so given all this pressure, and people may recognize, I mean, people probably already recognize you. They're going to recognize you even more after after tonight's win. Uh, when people get to your house for trick-or-treating, and you've been up since 1 a.m., so what do you give them? Um, I pretty much have a whole big bucket of candy, but I also, for the adults, I usually have uh, mini donuts. Um, oh, cool. Or we have, you know... We do something a little bit different. Me and my husband, we decorate our house. And then, you know, when the, all the parents come along, the kids get the candy and the adults get the donuts. <laughs> right. I guess, I guess you need someone, you need a partner in crime and all this as well. Someone oh, who's yeah. into it as well. Yeah. Especially now I'm being recognized like on the street. I'm being recognized when I do my grocery shopping. <laughs> um, it's really <laughs> odd for me. Like, you know, when someone says, oh, hey, I've seen you on TV. And I'm like, did you? <laughs> Uh, but, you know, now tomorrow, I think it's just going to be a little bit more crazy. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to, how will you, I guess you don't have time to celebrate right now, right? You, you enjoy this. Now you're talking to me, then it's off to bed and then it's up at one, one of the morning. Yeah, pretty much. Um, like I'll celebrate next week. <laughs> right. Like once Halloween's over, I'll, I'll celebrate after then. Um, but so, you know, I'll get to take Wednesday off and I'm just going to, you know, stay in bed and watch the whole series again because, you, I get to watch um, the show, but then I only get snippets of it because, you know, I've either got to go to bed or I'm working and I know the outcome, but I want to see it all again. <laughs> right. Well, they, they obviously edit them for, for, for drama, right? They have to. They have to edit them for some. You, obviously, you can't give away the secrets, but they yep. must edit them to try to create some sort of drama. Because sometimes I watch them and think, that person's going to win for sure. They finished whatever they had to do in, in record time, and now they're going to pretend that these other people are struggling when they really weren't. But I don't know. We had a really good group on there. Actually, yeah. everybody helped everybody when there was, you know, if there was somebody couldn't help, like to get their cake out of their cake rings or anything. We all wanted to help each other and succeed. And we became this amazing family. And like, I talked to, you know, Ryan and James every day. They've like become oh, wow. my best friends. Oh, that's great. I mean, it, it does it does look like there's camaraderie on those shows, so I'm glad that it's real. Like, that's that's good to hear. Um, you, you can help us answer one of the age-old questions that we always try to answer here. Is if, so, best Halloween candy. <laughs> if you had to pick one thing to get if you were trick-or-treating, if we could go back in time and allow you to trick-or-treat to sort of time travel to Canada in 1994 and you could go trick-or-treating, what's the one thing you'd want in that, in that, in that oh trick-or-treating bag? That's really hard, but I'm going to say anything sour. Really? <laughs> so if it's warheads, anything, I love sour candy. It's really? one of my favorite things to have. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I mean, I, I like chocolate, the chocolate bar. I was saying growing up with my dad, one of the things in North America is you think the trick-or-treating looks amazing, but sometimes a lot of your really good candy disappears before you wake up the next morning. Yeah, we have the best thing. Our son doesn't like chocolate, so we get to eat all his chocolate candy bars. So wow. it's amazing he gets he's like me he likes the sour so he sticks to those and we we eat all of the chocolate bars <laughs> ah so he so when the sour stuff goes when the sour patch kids go missing he knows it's you then oh yeah he knows straight away he goes mom where are they <laughs> <laughs> well holly congratulations that's awesome news uh good luck tomorrow and yeah hopefully i can make it by and come stop in at some point see your halloween extravaganza at punk rock pastries Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Hopefully you can come have a brain or two. And <laughs> when you put it that way, when you put it that yeah. way, there you go. Thanks so much, Holly. Awesome. Thanks.